Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Today's very special guest is D.B. Marshall. He is an international best-selling author and is working on his doctorate in social work. We talk about everything from human trafficking to kidney disease, something that, uh, that D.B. had to actually deal with firsthand. And actually, he gives a lot of really great advice for people wanting to figure out whether or not they're at risk for this. So uh, go ahead and check that out as well. I really did appreciate that little nugget of knowledge just because... Sometimes we uh, tend to overlook certain aspects of our bodies for other aspects. I'm not saying that we shouldn't look over everything in our body, but you know, sometimes we just seem to emphasize some things over others, and the kidneys are very important. You can check out DB on Instagram at lovespursuitatl. Also, he has a Facebook page. And, of course, you can also buy his book, Love's Pursuit, Journey to Wellness, on his website, lovespursuitatl.net and jumpstart your journey to wellness. Having DB on was a pleasure just because he really did teach me a lot about, as I said before, kidney disease and human trafficking, which is something that I really hadn't um, considered in the mental health picture just because I've kind of been slowly expanding my scope of mental health, um, just kind of learning from the ground up, I guess, ever since I started this podcast. He brings a lot of knowledge just because of his work in social work and his overall journey in general and also his work in being an author. I think he really did a lot of great research in making this book, so um, definitely go check that out. But without further ado, let's get straight into the video. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back to the Mental Health Chats. I am Mental Health Casual or Lucky, whatever you prefer. And today I have another very special guest. I have an author, a social, a social worker. And, you know, throughout my whole life, social workers have really been my saving grace, especially one in particular that um, I met out, uh, when I first got outside of the hospital. He really connected with me on an emotional le level who also... Um, he also ha suffered from social anxiety, so him giving me these pointers was very special. And so social workers have always had a very special place in my heart, um, just for the work that they are, uh, that they do for all of us that are really suffering with mental illness. So first off, DB, thank you for that. And, you know, I just wanted to kind of ask you, um, you know, I always start, start off asking, you know, what is your mental health journey kind of looked like? Like, when was your first exposure to mental health? When did you really start getting into that? Well, actually, my mental health started really young. So I was raised in a home in which my mama truly believed in diversity. She believed in being good to people and helping people. I can remember her taking, um, it was a total of four of us, taking us to the liquor store. We have a lot of corner stores, corner liquor stores in Miami. I'm from Miami. And when we would come out, oftentimes we would give some of the homeless people money and she would always say, hey, she was the, um, the valedictorian or she was the beauty queen at my school. Don't ever think that you can get so high that you will not end up in the same situation as they are. And so she always taught us to respect people. So um, the flip side of that, when you asked me, well, when was my first introduction into, I would call it chaos. <laughs> Um, it wasn't until I, until I started dating, man, like through, I mean, elementary, primary school, middle school, well, now they call it middle, it was junior high then. 
in high school, I didn't have a whole lot of drama. I didn't get in a whole lot of fights. My upbringing was so loving and caring, even though I grew up in a single parent household, I just had a really awesome upbringing. And so when I got into the real world, I didn't know how to respond to that. Like, I didn't know what lying was. I mean, I knew what it was, right? But we didn't do it at home. And so when I kind of got out in the real world and dating and lying and cheating, I was like, oh God, oh my, it's almost like lying tires and bears, oh my. That was my experience. It was like, people do this and how do they live with themselves? And how do they go to bed with a clear conscience knowing that they are manipulating people? And so that was my first introduction into like, severe mental health other other than that the social work aspect of my life has always been a part of who I am in my upbringing yeah that's a that's an interesting thing I mean could you could you kind of expand on that idea of respect because I feel like that's uh that's an idea that is I don't want to say lost I feel like it's kind of uh, become an abomination of what it used to be right in terms of you know people showing respect to each other I mean Mm -hmm. how do you how do you practice that as like you know as a social worker, as an author as well, you know, being able yeah. to speak to people, I feel like a certain amount of respect would have to be, uh, would have to be placed in order for people to trust you, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's completely true. So the first thing when it comes to respect, you have to really understand what your value system is, but it doesn't stop there. So you can't walk into a situation thinking that everyone understand your value system and know your value system. And so not only that you you have to know your value system, you have to be mature enough and responsible enough to ask the other individual, what are your value systems? And so I think we walk this earth thinking a lot of things are universal, like common sense. Well, sense is not common, but we go around saying it, right? There's no such thing as common sense, but somebody made it up and put it in a dictionary. But it's, it doesn't make any sense at all because we all have different experiences. We all come from different cultural backgrounds, different races, and so everything is not common. So what may be respectful in my culture may be completely different in your culture. So you have to just have that conversation and just get to know one another. And actually, hey, what are your, what is your, some of your values? What are some of your beliefs? I would like to learn more about you. Yeah, that's really well said. I you know, because I'm a very empathetic person. So, you know, whenever I can kind of read a room pretty well, also, it comes from the social anxiety, you know, I pick up on, 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 uh, you know, social cues very well. Um, I now granted, I've figured out throughout the years, whether or not to act on those and whether or not to, you know, kind of uh, differentiate between those. But, you know, could you kind of go into because, you know, you you have uh, your doctorate in social work. I just want to know kind of what that what is that process like? You know, what what are the things that you have to go through in order to achieve something that, um, you know, that highly regarded? Right. So let me clarify. So um, I am ABD. So do you know what ABD means? For those no, listening, so ABD basically means that I completed all the coursework in my doctoral program. Now we have to go through this what we call dissertation phase, and I'm glad you brought that up because last week the university, well, the committee and university approved my dissertation topic. So that is huge, like huge, bro. Like I am celebrating. All I did was cook ribs, but still I celebrated. But with that said, it is an accomplishment, and because. And I say that because in addition to trying to crank out the work, because that's literally what you do. We, I mean, people that tend to get their doctorate are full-time workers. And so we are literally working off of two to three hours of sleep, maybe four on a given day. But with that said, I know uh, why I'm doing it. And I'm not doing it for the accolades. I grew up, again, in a single-parent home, and we were poor, well, poor. You know, some people want to say poor, but I think there's a level of poor 
before you get to poor. And so I grew up poor and um, I never believed that I can do it. So I'm doing it or um, um, matriculating on this journey because I didn't think I can do it. I mean, I didn't even know what a bachelor's was. I didn't know what a master's was. Like I learned that stuff through my peers and being in school. And when I decided to go, uh, it's so funny because what I learned about a doctor, I just thought it was a medical doctor. And like, I'm being real, like, like, what is a doctor? Can I get a doctor's degree in something else? And so uh, when I sat down and talked to a few people and it was like, yeah, you can. And so I tried it and it happened. Um, and I will say this, just keep pushing because Georgia Tech, denied me apparently I wasn't smart enough but um but uh, Virginia Commonwealth accepted me but I end up pulling out and enrolling into Compella University because I ran into some medical issues that prevented me from moving forward yeah yeah thank you for for clarifying that and you know that is a really big accomplishment to get your your dissertation actually yeah. proved and everything that that is uh, awesome and you know I this is coming from a college dropout myself I was a philosophy major before I dropped out um, but, you know, really, I, you know, I kind of wanted to uh, kind of talk about, you know, because you, you come from, a, you know, spiritual health, physical health, yeah. uh, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, could you kind of talk about, um, can we start off with physical health? I mean, you know, I, I was checking out your Instagram. I know you, you work out and all that kind of stuff. I mean, how important is that to your overall health, especially since you say that, you know, they're you're a very busy person, right? I mean, yeah. how do you prioritize uh, that in your life? Um, I had to rearrange a few things in my schedule. And so for the most part now, I just prioritize it by making sure I work out in the morning. Because if you notice, no one is up, right? So I'll get up between 5 and 6 a.m. And being able to just get up and just listen to the birds or smelling the trees or smelling the dirt, you know, just really connecting with nature. It just, for me, it does something uh, for me. And not only that, I tend to be a little, I don't want to say selfish, let's say territorial when I get in the gym. Because when I work, when I use the weights, I just want to use the weights that I want to use and I don't want to share. Listen, I'm working on that. Now I'm working on that. And so with that said, going to the gym early in the morning, allow me to get in and get out. So I don't have a whole lot of distractions. So I always tell people when, when you're trying to make changes in your life, do it first thing in the morning when everybody is asleep. You don't have those distractions, whether you're trying to pray, whether you're meditating, whether you're going to the gym, whether you need to meal prep, whatever you do, try to do it first thing in the morning or just late at night when everybody is asleep because you'll get more accomplished. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, it's such a, I mean, I, I get that way too. Sometimes when somebody's <laughs> on my machine, man, I just feel like picking that thing up and just throwing yeah. them out. But you know, it, <laughs> I, I definitely, um, I definitely like that idea, right? Because it kind of sets, it also uh, sets off your day, right? You know, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there was that commercial, I think it was like a cereal commercial or something like that. But it was showing you like, if you eat pizza, you, and then all of a sudden, you just start making bad choices mm -hmm. the whole entire day. So if you make a really good choice, I think that could be have a very uh, beneficial effect on the rest of your day. And, you know, you're, uh, you know, going from physical health to spiritual health. I mean, this is something that I've always struggled to do, because I am religious. So I always try and put that aside when I'm talking about spirituality, just so that it it's more inclusive. You know, I've had, um, you know, somebody who is from the Hindu religion on, I've had, you know, my own pastor from the Presbyterian uh, mm -hmm. on and all that kind of stuff. What is uh, spiritual, what does spiritual health, I mean, mean for you? I'm sorry, spiritual health for me just basically mean connecting to a faith or a entity in which you believe in. And so um, 
for a while, you know, I, w- I was raised in a church, right? Started out really young and it never made sense to me. I know there was this formality, what you can and you can't do, but watching folks catch the Holy Ghost and speaking in tongues and all like that was like, okay, so y'all do that. So that, that wasn't my experience, right? But as I was growing up or while I was growing up, my grandmother always will just instill certain things. I call them golden nuggets. She was she would just say something and say, hey, remember this, remember that. Um, and so it wasn't until I really was challenged in my faith and borderline hit rock bottom. When I say rock bottom, that differs for everybody what rock bottom is. But that one that she said, and I turned around and I said to myself, like, okay, so, okay, God is real. You know, like we say God is real. Like a lot of us, I think we say it, but to explain experience it is a completely different thing. And so um, for me, it's now just connecting with the God in me versus like, you know, this make believe not saying God is make believe y'all don't, you know, cuss, you know, get on me about that, but just really just tapping into my connection because I truly believe I'm a descendant of God. Like I'm one of his children. So if I'm one of his children, why I do not necessarily possess some of the powers that he possess or some of the powers that he has gifted me with. So I need to know what those powers are or those talents or those gifts are. And so by me connecting with myself allows me then to connect with the spirit, if that makes sense. No, it definitely does. I mean, you know, when you think of all God's children, you think of everybody as like a brother and a sister. And it gets to the point where it gets very hard to discriminate at them. Um, Granted, uh, you know, I definitely have experienced, you know, families dividing and, you know, there there is a a tough part that happens with that. Also, family uh, can hurt you a lot more than a lot of other people can. But um, at least for me, it has helped me to make sure that I don't um, I don't differentiate between the people that I have on, despite my social anxiety and not wanting to <laughs> talk to a whole lot of people. But you know, in in your uh, in your um, studies and in, in social work, I mean, what is really because um, you know, I I, f- I see I feel like sometimes people end up, you know, they, you know, of course, you have to be broadly um, interested in everything. But was there ever anything that really, really interested you, um, you know, in terms of maybe something that you really focused on something that you actually really enjoyed writing about? Well, um, so initially, yes. So to answer your question, yes. So initially, I started out with sex trafficking. So um, I remember working as a social worker, I had a particular client who was trafficked, and she was heavy in it to the point where she wanted to um, go back to the streets after we saved her and put her in a you know a foster home but i thought that was my purpose right the thing that was just going to take me all the way to the end of the earth and kind of find out well next it wasn't and so one of the things um that i've experienced in life when i was working on my doctorate at virginia commonwealth at the time as i was um, diagnosed with a rare form of kidney disease called fsgs and that really changed my perspective on a lot of different things. And so as I started to do research and learn more about it, because it was more so it was like, hey, yeah, you get this. Hey, yeah, take this medication. And, um, and if it wasn't for me just really falling out and just on a, on a concrete floor, I probably would still be walking around with chronic kidney disease because most people don't get diagnosed until they're in stage five or renal failure. But um, mine was caught at stage three because I passed out. And so I always say, oh, that was a sign from God, right? Because um, it could be worse. And so now that's what my research is kind of focused on is trying to um, see how positive psychology can really empower people 
and to deal to to manage some of the depressive symptoms that we deal with when it comes to kidney disease. And I think we deal with that with any type of disease, right? When you diagnose and you have to go to these doctors and you're on these treatments and you're feeling good one day, off of the next day, you're trying to stabilize your um, the chemicals that's in your body. It just take you on this journey, a very uncomfortable journey. And sometimes you wake up, you're like, I don't want to do this today. And so I think right now, kidney disease in African-American community right now is the thing that I'm truly passionate about. Wow, that's really, uh, that's really inspiring too, because, you know, I'm generally a pretty healthy person. So whenever I hear about people who have to overcome physical, um, physical obstacles as well, you know, I've had somebody on um, that had a uh, something wrong with her intestinal tract and, you know, all, all that kind of uh, ulcerative colitis, I think is what it's called. And, okay. you know, dealing with that and, and dealing with your own mental health problems is something that I couldn't really fathom just because, you know, anytime I have like, uh, you know, anytime that I, you know, lift too much weight or, you know, my, my muscles get sore, I just start throwing ice on everything. I'm trying to get it all better. And so seeing people that have, you know, things that they really, that are really, um, tough on them uh, internally, you know, things that, uh, that are, you know, that are caught a little bit later um, is always inspiring to me. So, you know, that's, that's great that you are using that experience to really, um, well, not only educate, you know, because I, I don't really hear a lot about kidney disease a whole lot. I, you know, I don't really hear a whole lot about that in particular. You know, I'm more, I was more focused on my liver at the time when I was drinking heavily. Um, so, you know, when, when you talk about, uh, right. when you talk about like, uh, kidneys, you know, could you kind of explain the, the important functions behind the kidneys? Because I feel like sometimes they're kind of forgotten in, in a lot of people. Yeah, so the kidney regulates a lot within the system. One of the things that it helps regulate that's real big, I touch on the major things is, you know, um, your um, blood pressure is one of the things. Of course, the kidneys help us urinate as well. But the kidney main focus is to really filter a lot of the toxins in our bodies. And so um, with my type of disease, the scar tissues in the filter, the kidney filters are, well, I should say this, the filters in the kidneys are scarred. So I have scar tissue around it. So it prevents for a 100% filtration system to, um, you know, filter everything. And so with, right now, I think my kidneys are operating, liber- it goes between 43 and 45% that my kidneys are operating right now, uh, which is stage 3B, which um, is a blessing. I was diagnosed at stage three because it's stage 3A and stage B. So I started out as A, now I'm in B. But it's just um, a blessing in itself that I'm still stabilized. But for the most part, um, people who are diabetic have a history of hypertension, um, history of diabetes in your family or have hypertension, those are the ones that really, really need, need to pay close attention. In addition to that, um, individuals who are over the age, I'll say 60, 65. So what people don't know is that your organs age, right? Just like your skin age, which is an organ, your kidneys age. So as you're aging, you, oftentimes we notice that your kidneys are aging too. So sometimes when I talk to the minority groups, because it, it impacts the minority groups more than the white culture uh, or white race. But when I talk to minorities that they're that particular age, I just ask them to go get a renal panel. And the thing with it is that the doctors really don't test you for kidney disease. They have what they call a screening process. And if you do not 
you know, meet the criteria of that screening process, they're not going to run a renal panel. So I always advocate for people just go ahead and get that renal panel done um, because they're not going to do it for you. And statistics shows roughly about 74% of America, Americans are walking around with kidney, chronic kidney disease and they don't even know it. They don't even know it. And so I always encourage people to go on your doctor, go get your physical number one. And when you get your physical, just make sure they give you a renal panel, not a screening, a renal panel, just to make sure everything is right. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I think that's mm -hmm. something that, you know, that's why I kind of wanted to touch into this a little bit more, because I'd heard a little bit about, you know, kidney disease. Um, I'd heard about some fighters that had, had to deal with it as well. But, you know, when I, when you started kind of talking a little bit about it, it sounded, you know, it, it, it doesn't, you know, you, you kind of just think about the big things, uh, right? You know, obviously you should think about the big things as well, but you think about cancer, you think about this, this, and this, but yeah. when you hear about some of these things, you kind of forget that your body, uh, you know, kind of needs everything to function. So it is, uh, <laughs> really? you know, <laughs> so, you know, uh, thank you for enlightening, uh, especially me on that, because, you know, sometimes I do take things for, for granted when I'm, you know, when I can be very ignorant to a lot of things. Um, but, you know, I think, um, I think, you know, one of the things that I kind of wanted to, to touch on, you know, after you would kind of said, was it uh, human trafficking that you said you were, you originally? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Domestic, yeah, human, yeah d d well, domestic minor human trafficking. Yeah. Could you kind of talk about, uh, you know, what you kind of learned when you were kind of getting yeah. into that? Because I, it's always something I, I believe, I, I can't remember if this is exactly true. So I'm in Austin, Texas. I believe that Dallas or Houston are one of the big Houston. clubs for, yeah, for, for human trafficking. And that's such a shame. And I always, um, I'm always fascinated with the extremes because, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's, if you don't take care of the extremes, it's really hard to take care of the rest. And if you don't focus on the extremes, you know, nobody else is going to because people just look at the majority of things and they're like, well, majority of it's okay, right? But when you look mm -hmm. at that extreme, you know, population that's happening, um, there are some some horrific things that are going on in there. So what, yeah. what have you learned when you kind of went into that field or when you went well, into that study? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, mean, that, I mean, that's a good question. So first of all, I didn't realize that it was really going on. You know, I heard of... Um, trafficking, uh, mostly drug trafficking, and of course they traffic slaves, you know. So I'm very familiar about slave trades, slave trafficking, and stuff like that back in the day. And so there are some parallels and correlations when it comes to um, the slave <laughs> trafficking and also the sex trafficking because um, a lot of the characteristics and a lot of the traits are very similar. But, um, but domestic and when I and I'm gonna be clear when I said this I'm not just talking about sex trafficking in general I'm talking about domestic minor self trafficking meaning that it is a huge money maker here in the United States alone I'm not talking about even global it is a huge and a big business actually it's rated number two next to trading guns and so with that said um, as you said Houston is one is, is a hub um, Atlanta is a huge hub and the reason Atlanta where I'm from is a hub is because one is one of the well, I think it's our largest airport actually here in the United States. And so we're in the Southeast. And so it's easy for them to have these connecting flights to go to different areas when they need to get that particular victim to that area. But, um, you know, when it comes to that, I mostly focus on the minors. And so with that said, I found out that a lot of the um, the LBGT communities, um, teenagers, because their families are putting them out, you know, because of religious reasons or 
belief reasons, they end up going out trying to make a living. And so they run into a pimp and the pimp just pretty much house them so they can sell, you know, their service. And so then it becomes the things of goods and services, right? And so they become property. And because they are in such a vulnerable state, and they have been ostracized from the family or the people who thought they was going to support and love them, they start creating another family. Sometimes that family end up being the pimp. And then the other minors who are a part of that, you know, group become like almost siblings. And so it then turns into something else. Yes, it's sex trafficking, but now you have to understand that psychologically and socially, they are connected to these individuals emotionally. And where do they have to go? They're not going to be accepted at home, right? So they tend to then just stay with that group. And when they're removed from that group to be placed in what we would consider a more healthy environment, they just want to go back because again, that's that connection. Yeah, that's just so, so heartbreaking, you know, to mm-hmm. have... You know, I I grew up in a single parent household uh, as well. And so, you know, just having one parent not exactly want you was was tough enough. But having a whole household, a whole community um, kind of throw you out is is very, very uh, it's really hard to it was really hard to hear when you were when you're talking about it. But, you know, I I'm kind of wondering, you know, do you have any maybe um, solutions or maybe like uh you know, ways to kind of nip this in the bud in terms of, uh, in terms of people, uh, in terms of us getting our communities back together, because one thing that I'm noticing, uh, you know, I'm half Samoan and, you know, I'm always very, uh, keen to the statistics of Samoans, you know, we're always in the top five, uh, most obese people per capita, um, Mm -hmm. in the world. Um, I'm always trying to figure out, you know, how do I do this? You know, how do I do that? Um, you know, do you, do you have, any um are you optimistic about you know our communities kind of um accepting accepting even the most uh, marginalized people or you know how do you how do you see that going in our future yeah let me let me i mean i don't know your age but um i am you know generation x and i am excited about the young generation I, i'm a, i'm excited about their their passion i'm excited about their bonus and their assertiveness and their innovativeness right and so for so long i've i've always been what i would call the black sheep of the family like i always thought differently and i don't know if it had a lot to do with how i was raised but i've always seen people in a way of you know in a perspective of giving them grace right we're going to make mistakes but i think we need to be a little bit more kind Um, and extend grace. And so if I had to tell anyone, anything, parents, uncles, uncles, whoever listening, if you are having um, conflict with whomever you having a conflict with, and you need to like put them out or, uh, you know, separate yourself from them because it's not healthy, then just release them with resources. Okay. And what I mean by that, okay, if a child, you know, is misbehaving and she's not respecting the home and you want them to leave okay make sure they leave but leave and put them or attempt to put them in a healthy environment call a aunt or a sister or brother or grandmother and if that doesn't work call a shelter call you know the division of family children services in your area just do not put them out and have them vulnerable to the world and that also goes with adults when we having these conflicts we have to remember to step back and not make emotional decisions 
And, and, you know, I always tell people there's a difference between reaction and response. Reaction is driven by emotion and you do and you say sometimes exactly what you feel and how you feel. And that's not always best, you know, but you can say amongst yourself, but not always to the other person because they may not necessarily have the capacity to deal with whatever it is that you want to deliver. And we have to make sure anything that we want someone else to receive, we have to present it in a way that it would be embraced, right? And so we have response where it just allow you just to kind of step back, sleep on it, you know, think about it for two or three days, think about it for a week, then come back and, you know, re revisit it from a different headspace. I like to call it a different headspace. So if I had to tell anyone what that they can do to address some of the things that's going on in the world, before you have these disconnects or these arguments or, you know, these separations, just make sure you are releasing and look at it like this. If you are a faith goer, just releasing a child of God into the hands in which they're going to be taken care of because we don't want them out there in the streets when they are vulnerable because hurt people turn around and hurt other people. And when those hurt people are in the streets, they're going to turn around and hurt themselves. And, but it is, it may be with drugs. It may be with prostitution. It may be with um, cutting themselves. You know, they put themselves in that situation for, because they need to survive. Yeah. Really well said. And, you know, I was a big, um, you know, user of uh, punching walls and, you know, I, I think that's that's just so uh, that's so true because you know when I was in the um, the mental health hospital, the psych ward, um, I was that was one of the first things that they really were kind of instilling in us. And for people that don't know, like in the inpatient procedure is a lot of kind of rebuilding yourself. And one of the big things that we were kind of learning was kind of that 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 bottling up effect of you know making sure that you don't just release everything at once. And if you end up getting to that point, making sure that you um, you take a break, you know, don't, don't just, and I really like that idea of, you know, react reaction and response being completely different, right? Because sometimes we do use them very interchangeably. And so, you know, when, when you actually have like this, uh, when you actually react to what somebody's saying, you know, it's just immediate. It's this primal kind of like I'm in yeah. fight or flight mode and, you know, you're not really using your thoughts. You're not really thinking about it rationally. And I really like, um, I really like that. And, you know, one thing I also wanted to get into, so I'm, I'm 28 years old. And so when I was in high school, um, I was actually surprised at how little I knew about mental health, not saying mm -hmm. that there weren't some people that would talk about it, but it was very, very rare that I ever heard about it. You know, do you think that in the future, maybe we'll eventually get into the point where we get like a mental health class or, you know, psychology class or critical thinking class in our high school. Cause I really didn't get those offered until college. And, but high school is actually kind of when I, I feel like I really needed it. Of course, a lot of people need it before that, but um, right. do you think there's ever, you know, do you think that would help? Do you think that's a possibility in the future? Yeah, it's definitely a possibility. Well, first, um, you know, we have, I think, first of all, we probably going to move from the term, I'm hope that we move from the term mental health to um, chemical imbalance, right? Because mental health has a stigma around it. And at the end of the day, it's really, I mean, in essence, your body just have a chemical imbalance. And it's not just in the mind, literally <laughs> your whole body is, um, or a certain parts of the body is, is experiencing an imbalance. And so that affects the mind, right? And so, um, so I think we're probably gonna start with there was just trying to, reword that and so we can kind of look at it differently but yeah i'm surprised now that i know more about mental health that we had sex education but we didn't have 
mental health education. And it was like, so y'all gonna teach me how to get it in or what not to do. And I get it, right? Um, because there's different diseases and things like that that comes along with that. And, and yes, we need the anatomy of the body. We have to understand what we have. I completely get it, but we did not talk about mental health at all, at all. So I do believe uh, with the new generation and it, especially what we experienced with COVID, like they're going to have to address it because domestic violence has increased, suicides have increased, depression has increased, and not only in adults, but also in teenagers. Yeah, that's, that's really true. And I, I've, you know, I've seen the, the, I think there was a statistic about, you know, ADHD cases coming up as well, just because of the, the Zoom classes and, uh, you know, just being, you know, being right next to you, you know, literally I'm talking to you, my Xbox is right there. And I can't even imagine doing work like that. That's, that's crazy to me. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that's a really, that's a really good point. And I kind of wanted to ask your thoughts, because I am pretty, I do look at mental or, you know, I do look at, you know, the whole the whole um, idea of depression and anxiety as kind of a whole, but I always, I don't ever really look at it into different communities like that um, until, you know, I had a, a great doctor on uh, Dr. Tanessa Franks and she was talking about social anxiety in the LGBTQ plus community and yeah. kind of how to uh, give some great ideas into that. I mean, have you noticed, uh, you know, mental health or chemical imbalances in uh, in minority groups, um, have the, is there like a, have you noticed if there's like a difference between that kind of like how you said, um, kidney disease was a little bit, uh, was, uh, you know, more prevalent in a certain community than others. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed if there was a rise or fall or, um, if there's, uh, you know, if there's more numbers in that, those particular communities than others? Yeah. I, you know, the last time I checked the numbers are increasing, increasing due to COVID. Um, but, um, they're increasing for different reasons. So, of course, um, the African-American community and Black community have experienced more deaths, right? And so they're dealing with that whole grieving process. And it just looks different for everyone. You have people who couldn't see their loved ones as they were passing away. The trauma, I'm just going to call it all trauma. The trauma has been very severe in the Black community. In addition to that, it has been very severe when we saw... Um, George Floyd killed in Breonna Taylor that also put another level of stress and trauma on us and even though it wasn't a direct trauma it was indirect right because we all can identify probably with someone we've known that lost their lives to injustices and so with that said there has been an increase um, the downside to it is just in a black community um, mental health just has a huge 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 stigma Technically, there's a whole lot that we don't trust in the Black community because we were always, you know, the guinea pigs back in the day, our history, they always used us to test whatever it is they wanted to test on us. And so we're trying to get over that hurt. We're trying to get over that mistrust with the government and mistrust with the um, uh, local government as well with police officers and um, um um, DAs and things of that nature. So we have a long way to go as it relates to mental health. You know, we have to open up our minds to embrace that it exists and also understand that you can't pray it away. And so one of the things when it relates to the Black community is that we tend to be very churchy people, very churchy. Um, they probably can read a whole book of a Bible from A to Z. I mean, we are raised on a Bible, a, a bottle in the Bible. Um, and for the most part, we have to be able to separate the two. 
And I always tell people who are churchgoers, I say, listen, I pray and I believe in God, but I also realize that God work on his time and not my time. So what do you do in the meantime? In the meantime, you do what you need to do until he arrives. You prepare yourself and get ready for what is getting ready to be given to you. But if you don't do the work, then more than likely, oftentimes you kind of work against the current. So try not to swim against the current. So do your part while you're waiting on that blessing. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And it's pretty much the same thing in the Samoan and the Pacific Island community as well. Um, you know, we're all very uh, strictly religious. And, um, you know, I've definitely uh, seen some cases of, of you know, um, kids coming out as gay, kind of getting ostracized that way. Um, you know, when you talk about, luckily my, my, most of my family that I have on my Facebook um, they all been in California for like most of their lives or anything like that. So they're already used to this. Um, so they were very welcoming when I had my YouTube, when I started this podcast and my YouTube channel. So um, I, there's definitely a lot of, you know, kind of like you said, there was a lot of, there's a lot of hope for the future um, that all of our, you know, all of our suffering, all of our ancestors suffering, your mm -hmm. ancestors suffering um, is, is not for, is not for nothing. Right. right. Um, that there is a, um, that there is a, uh, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, how, how, how much do you think, cause I've, I've had debates with people on this and I, I, I was just kind of curious about what your perspective is. How, how important do you think hope is? Because some people like to think, Hey, you know, hoping is not doing, so don't hope just do. But I feel like you don't have to be exclusive to one or the other. You can still do and still have hope. Um, what's, what are your thoughts on hope? So I have this for our model, right? And so my for our model is first, and, and I like when you said in when you were in um, the institution at that particular time, they wanted you to rebuild, they focus on it. So the first R is to reconnect, you reconnect with yourself. Um, the second R is to remember. The reason that you remember, because oftentimes we have good memories, we have some bad memories, but always remember the good times, because the good times is actually is was probably going to bring you out of that depression, right? Oftentimes we end up in depression because we can't see it past our hand. And so once you can see past the dark clouds, you can see past the hand, you can see a little glimmer of light, you get a little excited. And so with that said, the third stage, um, and to your point, is the reflection stage. So the reflection stage is also connected with hope, right? So once you have reconnected with yourself, what are your values? What are your beliefs? What do you want to do? You know, do I need to redefine my values after I've just come up out of this nasty divorce to or stop drinking? Do I, you know, do I need to redefine what that looks like? Then you just want to just remember those good days. Mom taking me to the beach, going on a field trip, hanging out with my friends. I want to get back to that feel good place. And so that reflection stage allows you to reflect on everything that you did in a reconnection and the remembering stage. And that's to me is hope, right? Hope has meaning hope has purpose. However, if you don't do anything without hope, then, then you get stuck, right? You'll get stuck in a remembering stage and we don't want that. So when you start reflecting, you want to hope for more, you want to plan for more, you want to do better. So you start coming up <clears throat> with a plan in that reflection stage, then you want to reboot. And that's when you actually execute what you wrote down in that reflection stage. So hope can fall on deaf ears if you allow it to. And that's, you know, you have to mobilize your plan. But if you move forward to the reboot stage, then you will actually put your plan to action. So, you know, I mean, depending on who you talk to, I can understand how they may feel that way. 
But sometimes all we have left is hope. Sometimes you don't even have faith when we talk about spirituality, because even when I went through my kidney disease, faith, I, I don't think I had any faith left, you know, because I was a healthy young man. And I'm like, why did this happen to me? Like, no, you know, what did I do to deserve this? I don't go around hurting people, killing people, shooting drugs, misusing this. I've always been the, you know, the good, but my family would tell you, my mom said, I don't even remember beating you as a child. And I was like, yeah, that's true. So when I was diagnosed, I just thought it was me being reprimanded by, um, reprimanded by God for something I've done. And I had to also look at it and say, well, you know what, maybe because I am the chosen one to walk this path to help others who aren't strong enough to deal with what I'm dealing with. But hope is what saved me. Yeah, that's really well said. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, when, you know, that's why I kind of say it's not, it's not like mutually exclusive to, to one another, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think that's a really good point. And, you know, you had, kind of, you know, going back a little bit, I know you had mentioned, you know, hurt people hurt people, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, and you had mentioned kind of trauma before. Well, Mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes I feel like a lot we're kind of stuck in like, sometimes, sometimes uh, some of us are stuck in this cycle of hatred of blame Mm -hmm. of, you know, how do you think that we get out of that cycle? Is it the individual's responsibility to get themselves out of the cycle? Do you mm-hmm. think that there is somebody there that should that needs to help that individual? Um, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on getting out of like this cycle of of constant uh, of constant hate? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, and and as I mentioned to you before, um, when we talk, you know, I have a book and it kind of you know really hashed this out because a lot of the the it's a total of or seven of us, but we literally talk about this, right? So as a total of seven entrepreneurs who went through this mess, I call it mess. And so here's the thing, um, you have to clean your own mess, okay? Now, I do believe that we're a collective body. And so some of us have resources that a person or you may need to help us get out of that mess. But don't think you can come and dirty up my pool and just leave my pool to go to another pool to dirty up. Everybody want to come and play in the pool during the summer, swim in the pool, drink in the pool, carry on in the pool. But you notice nobody ever, ever asks, you want me to clean your pool? You know how much it costs to clean the pool and keep it nice and clean with the chlorine and all? It costs money. And so stop dumping your dirty laundry in people's houses and expect for them to kind of clean up your mess. So with that said, you have to do the work. When we're dealing with stuff, you have to do the work. But I don't care how much your collective want to see you progress. And sometimes I actually see the good in people and see their potential. But I had to learn to stop trying to help so many people because they have to do the work. At the end of the day, if they don't want to do the work to reach their full potential, then there's nothing else that I can do. Then it wears me out and I'm experiencing burnout because I love and I care so much. And so, um, like I said, to your point, yeah, we have to do the work. But when we identify that someone is willing to hold themselves accountable and do the work, then we come in and say, come on, bro, I have your hand. We're going to get through this thing together. But they have to they have to get there. Yeah, that's really well said. And uh, once again, you know, I did, uh, I will have mentioned it in my intro video, but uh, his book is Love's Pursuit. And I, that will be in the description box down below. And, you know, I think that's a really good point because I feel like, 
um, you know, it's a lot like addiction, right? When I had to go through um, alcoholism and all that kind of stuff, I really had to, I had to be the one that did it because every, I, my mom was telling me for years, you know, you're drinking too much, yeah. you know, you, you passed out on the porch again, you know, did this. It's like, it's like, yeah, but you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 20, whatever. And then all of a sudden 21 <laughs> becomes 25 and I'm not doing anything. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good point. It's really, uh, you know, it really does help. You know, when I, when I was an addict, I really started to realize that a lot of my actions had uh, effects on other people. Cause you, you kind of said, you know, we're, we're collectives, but we're also, we live as a collective, but we're also individuals. Um, and I think once you realize that your your choices really do have an effect on other people, a lot of times um, it really does help, uh, you know, you kind of get your life together because then it starts to affect the whole community. <laughs> I used to have this uh, saying on my channel a long time ago that I used to say, like at the very end where I was like, you know, you're part of the world. And if you get better, then the whole world gets better because a part yeah. of the world's getting better. Um, and I think that's just a, such a positive message, you know, you know, get, get your stuff together. I think that's such a, it, it's, it's, it sounds, you know, it sounds, it sounds simple, but uh, some people need to hear it like that, you know, because yeah. if sometimes we overcomplicate, um, the messages sometimes, I mean, would you kind of, uh, go into, uh, you know, just a little bit about, uh, what made you want to write this book, you know, uh, what kind of inspired yeah. it and, you know, what, uh, what in the world, uh, you know, maybe you were trying to uh, go out and fix or maybe just address? Well, you know, a lot of people will always tell me that I have an incredible story. People will always ask me, especially when I was in school, how you become, how did you become so resilient? And I was like, resilient? Let me look that up. <laughs> and uh, then I ran into a principal because I was teaching, um, or assistant teacher to um, this teacher who taught kindergarten. And she came up to me and she said, you know, you have the gift of discernment. And I was like, oh, I don't know what that means either. Let me look that up. And so um, with that said, I was married and um, I don't believe in divorce. It's just who I am. Uh, when I'm with you, I'm with you. I don't care what we go through. I'm with you. And that's just how I'm built. And um, however, if you come to me and tell me you're not in love with me no more, I get it. You know, I'll let you go. Or if you tell me you don't want me no more, listen, I'll let you go. But I end up getting a divorce and I didn't want to divorce, but I conceded to the divorce and it was amicable because I realized that different excuses was kind of coming up, right? And we've been in therapy and there was always looking for something wrong. And I can remember me having a conversation with myself after we came from therapy because we had this big old argument in a parking lot and I said you know I'm gonna let this thing go and I can remember um him looking back at me and said you know I would like that but I know once I closed the door he was probably doing cartwheels or whatever and so that was the beginning of hurt this hurt this deep 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 hurt because I wanted that and so it left me depressed and so while I was going through that I had um, experienced racism at the time while I was going through that um, my engine had went out and locked up and they told me it was gonna be seven thousand dollars to fix while I was going through that I can remember on my way to work one day my car went into a ditch someone writ I mean kind of pushed me off the road and they literally had to pull my car out of a ditch um, and some other things happened I was demoted from my job because of some racist and prejudiced behavior that was going on some overt 
racism that that happened and I never dealt with racism ever in my life so I didn't know how to process that so that just really left me decided and depressed and yeah I was sad and depressed for a while and I ended up taking FML which gave me a total of 12 weeks and I just did much of nothing just laid in the bed and cried and you know, that's when I started having those conversations and and I birthed that whole model out of that, believe it or not. And I'm like, who does that? Like who birthed a whole model out of hurt and being depressed? And, but those are the things that I went through. And so um, that encouraged me, that encouraged me to write the books. And so the book was actually supposed to be in a collaborative partnership with a buddy of mine who kind of backed out of it at the last minute um and I was like how could you and, you know I know I didn't do that I was like look buddy I understand you know people have their own calling he didn't like the direction in which the book was going so I sat down and I was like lord what do I do and I got the epiphany to invite six other entrepreneurs so they can tell their story but also build their business and i said you don't have to contribute nothing i'm paying for the whole entire book all you have to do is tell your story and we're going to see how i can get you to the next level in your life and so the book is very deep and intimate we talk about divorce we talk about uh, molestation someone was molested someone is a quadriplegic um and um can't feel anything from the neck down um, we had someone um, that went through relationship trauma, spiritual trauma, what they had to go through with the church, church hurt. So we really talk about a lot of intimate, like it gets real deep, <laughs> intimate. I always tell people, bring a box of tissue because I'm sure you're going to end up crying. Um, but it's also a lot of actionable too, challenging your perspective and uh, where you are in life and what you want to do and where you want to go. So yeah, that's how I kind of came about writing it. Yeah, I mean, that's such a great, um, you know, I've, I've always told people on here, you know, being a sufferer of social anxiety, you know, I'm not, um, you know, I, I, I like motivation, but I like action more. And I, I like that you're taking the action to really, to really put your story out there. You're doing something with all this stuff that's this negative stuff that's happened to you mm-hmm. and taking it all back in, in a way, you know, I had somebody on here, um, Jim Shupak, who lost 100 days of his life to depression. So he's, his goal is to run 100 marathons, right? And so, you know, that, that's such a, a powerful thing. So you literally took all of that and you created this book that seems to be doing very well from what I saw on your Instagram. And, you know, it, it seems like that you've really turned all of this around. And, you know, I, it, you know it's just such an honor to have you on this uh, program as well, just to really be telling your story. And, you know, uh, DV, this is where I kind of give you the floor to, uh, really give your message. You know, you've, we've talked about a lot over this, um, but you know, what, what, uh, what would you kind of tell my listeners, my viewers, uh, maybe that have gone through what you've gone through in terms of maybe discrimination or in terms of hitting their rock bottom and not knowing where to go in life, or maybe that want to, um, you know, get into social work. I mean, what would you, what would you tell the listeners? What would your message be? Well, um, you said a mouthful there, but let, let me say this because you said something that was that resonated with me. So when I first came up with that model, um, I went to do a presentation at the, this university here in Atlanta, and I titled the presentation "Take Back What Is Rightfully Yours." So when you said that, I was like, "What? We are in sync. We are in tune. I know what the." 
God and the angels are saying we are in sync right here. So I was excited when you said that. But no, yeah, it is doing well. I'm, I'm actually a number one international author as of today. So the book has done well and doing well. And um, so I appreciate that. I mean, so my message is being heard is resonating with someone. But if I had to, you know, really empower someone, I would just continue to t tell people it's not too late. It's not too late. I just turned 47 years old. Um, there's, you know, I didn't know I was even going to make it to C47 based on a lot of the different things that I experienced in my life. Um, and, you know, just really thinking about where I came from and where I am today, not knowing anything about much of nothing upside of just be good to people. Now, you know, I'm able to explore, you know, this doctoral program, writing a book, uh, being able able to be a kidney ambassador, go around to the different faith-based institution to educate people. Um, you ask, you know, what I encourage anyone to become a social worker, I would say become a social worker. Um, but I wouldn't encourage anybody to continue to get them. Well, I say probably become a social worker, a bachelor's, get a master's in social work, but just try to do a dual program in MPH, um, public health, master's in public health, because the public health will broaden your perspective and will open up to me. Uh, it will diversify your portfolio, one, your academic portfolio, but it's also will open up that those medical doors that sometimes social workers can't necessarily get into. So don't necessarily pigeonhole yourself. You want to make sure that you are diverse. And so when you present yourself in any particular opportunity that, you know, you can sell whatever it is that you do. Yeah, really well said, DB. And I'm uh, I'm in awe that you're 47, man. I look I look like twice your age, and I'm like <laughs> 20, I'm 28. So I mean, you might you you're doing really well with the physical health part. So yeah, man. Once again, I just wanted to thank you so much for being on here. I've learned a lot about I mean, so many different topics, um, and I'm sure my viewers have as well. And you know, just thank you so much for being here. And you know, I, I always tell people I'm, I'm trying to kind of be that um, Pacific Island voice in mental health. Of course, we do have big public figures like The Rock, but, um, you know, just not enough, in my opinion, in terms of, uh, you know, getting that message out there. So, you know, having somebody like you representing your people and, you know, really showing what is possible, you know, mm -hmm. despite the setbacks that you have been given in your life is very inspiring and is basically what my, my mental health chats are all about is really getting people yeah. to um, really inspire people. So DB, once again, thank you for being on the mental health chats. Thank you so much. It was great being here with you today. Hey guys, thanks for watching mental health casual. Don't forget to like share and subscribe for more videos.